1: erlon i will never forget it ear hustle stories about life on the inside told by those who live it
3: find ear hustle wherever you get your podcasts from wabe in atlanta this is closer look i'm rose scott coming up on today's program Oh, yeah. Midterm elections are less than three months away. Is Georgia's most populous county ready? I'll ask Fulton County Elections Board Chair Kathy Woolard in just a moment. Also, it's called Threat Awareness Technology. Well, the co-founders of the company behind it say... Artificial intelligence can be used safely and ethically to prevent gun violence. We'll talk all about that. Plus, noted research and health disparities expert Dr. Rick Kittles is now the Senior Vice President for Research at the Morehouse School of Medicine. We'll discuss his vision for implementing additional funding for basic science and clinical research faculty. All important community conversations coming up, but first this. Governor Brian Kemp wants to use $2 billion of Georgia's budget surplus for tax rebates. WABE's politics reporter Raul Bali says the proposal is part of Kemp's
1: re-election campaign agenda. Governor Kemp wants to do a second state income tax rebate similar to the one earlier this year. That gave $250 to most single tax filers and $500 for most joint filers. Governor Kemp is also proposing a property tax rebate for homeowners.
3: For an average savings of $500 for every homeowner, pending the General Assembly's approval, And my signature on next year's budget, approximately $1 billion will be sent back to taxpayers.
1: Even with these proposals, there are still billions of surplus dollars available to state leaders. Still, Kemp pushed back on Democratic challenger Stacey Abrams' call to spend the surplus on things like Medicaid expansion. This is one-time money. If you build new government programs with one-time money, it's not going to be there the next year. And she's not going to be able to pay for all the plans that she is putting out there without raising your taxes. Kemp says some of the surplus is being spent on the state gas tax suspension. Raul Bally, WABE News, the state capital.
3: In other news, as electric truck maker Rivian continues planning a giant production facility east of Atlanta, the company's also focused on meeting customer demand at its existing plant in Illinois. Emil Moff reports, however, supply, supply chain issues remain a big factor.
1: Rivian says it produced nearly double the number of vehicles in the second quarter of this year compared to the first, on an earnings call Thursday, CEO R.J. Scaringe says they've seen an uptick in new orders as well.
0: So the more vehicles that are on the road, the more people are learning about them, hearing about them. And we certainly think that's leading to some of the accelerated demand.
1: He says Rivian wants to add a second shift in Illinois in the next two months. But that's contingent on whether the electric vehicle maker can find materials.
0: It wouldn't make any sense for us to hire a whole second shift and, and then have the line sit still waiting for parts.
1: Rivian is expected to break ground soon on its facility in Georgia, But it won't be online until 2024 at the earliest. Emil Moffat, WABE News.
3: Former President Donald Trump now has a legal team here in Atlanta to represent him in the Fulton County Special Grand Jury investigation. Now, according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Trump has retained criminal defense attorneys Drew Feinling and Jessica Little. Fineland is best known for representing hip-hop artists, including rappers Gucci Mane and the Migos. On Twitter, he refers to himself as the billionaire lawyer, and he's also posted tweets critical of Trump. Little has prosecuted high-profile cases for DeKalb County. Of course, the grand jury is investigating whether Trump and his allies committed crimes by trying to overturn the 2020 election results here in Georgia. And speaking of Georgia and elections... Midterms are coming up. It was a busy day for the Fulton County Board of Registration and Elections yesterday as the board voted to approve items all related to voting, most of them. The midterm elections, yes, three months away, and as usual, a lot of attention will be focused on, you guessed it, Fulton County. Let's welcome Fulton's board chair of registration and elections, and no stranger to the world of local politics, Kathy Woolard. Welcome. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me. Y'all were busy yesterday. Well, we're busy at every
2: meeting. We we do not have meetings where there's nothing to do.
3: Let's begin with some actions from yesterday's meeting and also clear up, uh, Madam Chair, any other confusion voters may still have. There was a lot. First of all, I want to address the whole issue of with with the campuses, with with the college campuses, because, uh, and depending on whom you ask, there was some information floating around that perhaps you all were not going to allow. Can you st- sort of take our listeners through what this was all about and what you all did yesterday?
2: Sure. Um, Well, all along, our plan was to approve early voting sites, advanced voting sites at this meeting. This was our regularly scheduled meeting. We have special meetings from time to time on other topics. Um, And frankly, I think some folks jumped the gun a little bit. They asked us if we were planning to have early voting on college campuses. Our director told them to be in touch after August 1st. For reasons we don't understand, uh, press releases went out before that date uh, and a whole bunch of clamor happened. Um, you know, we let our staff do the proper investigations and budgeting and everything else to determine, uh, you know, how we're going to conduct advanced voting, including what the hours are, what the locations are. And we try very hard to make sure that we have a good spread across the entire county. Um, And so, uh, you know, we got our list of uh, proposed locations yesterday and took an action and we'll be at four or five campuses, depending on um, some final determinations on one campus.
3: But we do know it will be Georgia Tech, Georgia State and Morehouse, correct?
2: And Atlanta Tech and Georgia. The one we're waiting on Mm -hmm. or we're waiting on yesterday was uh, Georgia State's Alpharetta campus because we want to put one. Uh, up north
3: and there are some state for two, for
2: two days apiece by the way i'm sorry go ahead for just two days apiece
3: okay now i also want to be very clear too because georgia has uh, has a new, some new provisions with its election laws so there are some things that you all have done in the past that you haven't been able to do because of the new election law correct
2: yeah that's right we, we're not we have um mobile voting mobile vans that we used for for voting locations um and we're no longer able to use those for that purpose we do use those for voter outreach and education and poll worker outreach but uh we can't use them for those purposes which uh frankly was helpful to to be able to go to some locations like this
3: i want to stop for a moment and talk about that because how challenging is it for you all to want to continue to do some of the whether it's making it easier for folks to do have their, their absentee ballots turned in or voting early. And you're not the only county, but counties have had to adopt to the Georgia's new law here as with some of these provisions. So that's a challenge for all the counties. But you all are the most populous. You have the most, I believe you have the most registered voters, correct me if I'm not. So you've had to adapt, adapt to this, correct?
2: Yes, and we, continue, and we continue to adapt because there are changes uh, in a variety of things that were suggested in um, Senate Bill 202 that came without very clear instructions. So it's a constant search of you know reading the law, conferring with the Secretary of State's office, trying to make sure that everything that we do uh, is in order. But it's, uh, those bills have been very costly for election administration and more complicated.
3: Well, let's go over one of them through your lens. What one is the most complicated and costly? Are they the same?
2: Mm, A couple. Well, let me give you a couple of examples. Mm -hmm. Um, The probably immediate most costly one was it used to be that poll workers could only be volunteers from the county in which they reside. Uh, The General Assembly, and I think they had good intentions on this, open that up to say that uh, you could work in a county contiguous to the county in which you reside. Mm -hmm. Well, what that did was set off a a salary, a payment war, if you will. I I mean that in nice terms, but some competition and payment. Um, And so we have had to raise the the poll worker pay. I'm not going to debate whether that was a good idea or not a good idea. But the impact is when we discovered that we were less competitive Mm -hmm. than some of our uh adjoining counties um it it mandated we do that we have to have 3000 volunteers to administer an election so we can't be at a competitive disadvantage in terms of attracting people to work with us
3: how much you how much are y'all paying workers on in the precincts do you know
2: oh my goodness it it varies on the job and mm-hmm. the the time but it's in the i just want to say 15 to 17 dollars an hour range something like that
3: are you it's concerned
2: very, very specific to the task? Are so you,
3: have you, are y'all you already getting applications for folks wanting to work and because pretty you? soon, yep. ap, you know, early votings will be starting soon. So.
2: Yeah, we are right in the thick of it. We're holding um, mobile uh, poll worker recruitment fairs in any, uh, Like city in Fulton County that will have us. We're going to community groups and other things like that. So Mm -hmm. now's the time. And if anybody listening wants to volunteer to be a poll worker, you can just go on the Fulton County election website and there's a whole bunch of little boxes and click on the one that says be a poll worker and go from there.
3: Now you're saying volunteer to be a poll worker, but we also talked about a a pay here. So you might want to clear that up for our listeners. Are you saying that if you volunteer, you won't get paid or you oh, can sorry. volunteer?
2: Yeah, you'll get paid. Sorry.
3: I, be clear, Chair, Madam I'll Chair, because be folks.
2: <laughs> yeah. No, you'll get paid. Thank get paid.
3: you. Folks want to get
2: paid. You're now, free to uh, donate your money to someone if you want to. <laughs> all
3: right. Let's talk about early voting. How many early voting locations will there be?
2: Um, You know, I knew you were going to ask me that and I meant to go back and count. I think it is 34, 34, um, or
3: somewhere up there. 34, 35, 34 36. To 36. Okay. I
2: apologize for not having the exact number.
3: And the same hours or the, have the hours been expanded? I I tried to l- listen in to you. I had a lot to say yesterday. I was trying to listen in as much as I could. But right. I think you expanded these hours for early voting locations from 7 a.m. That's to 7 p.m.
2: Uh, we're open on uh, the uh, allowable Saturdays and Sundays. I believe Sundays we're open 11 to 5 uh, as opposed to 7 to 7. Um, and, uh, you know, we're trying to make voting is especially advanced voting is easy for everybody because Election Day voting just gets that much harder.
3: Let's talk about absentee ballots. There yeah. is a shorter period now, correct? Yep,
2: yep. Yeah, I believe you're making me do all these dates and times and details. You're the, the, you're of the chair.
3: You should. Know. I know. I know, but
2: it's a lot of stuff, and it changes every time there's an election. That is, that is uh, true. To,
3: to be fair, that is true.
2: Uh, so, I believe, uh, based on our discussion yesterday, we can receive absentee ballot request forms after August twenty second. Okay. What's really important for folks to know is if you send it to us before, we're going to return it to you to tell you that you can't that you have to send it after the 22nd. We can't hold them and then just do it on the 22nd. um, And then it will be some weeks after that before we start sending them out. That's not our rules. That's rules as a part of some of these voting changes that we have. They're very confusing to people and frankly, somewhat of an inconvenience.
3: Madam Chair, let me ask you then, have you or you all had a chance to, I know you're without a a director at the moment, but who is representing the county in terms of coordinating with Secretary of State's office to make sure you have more clarity. You mentioned that you don't. Uh, Secretary Rausberger has always said that the Secretary's office is there to help and assist. Are you all reaching out?
2: Oh my goodness, yes. We're, we talk to them and, and email with them regularly, depending on what the issue is. Sometimes it is our attorney talking to them for guidance. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's our election director uh, speaking with them for guidance. Sometimes depending on what the situation is. It'll be the person who manages the function that will be talking to the peer in that office that does that. But those conversations are, I can't say that they're daily, but mm-hmm. they are quite often.
3: What is concerning for you right now and the and the rest of the board in terms of as we get closer and closer, not only just to the midterms, but when early voting starts?
2: Oh, gosh. Um, well... We just got to the period where we can no longer accept individuals challenging people's voter registration, which was a change from Senate Bill 202 that allowed individuals to do that. That has been very time consuming and quite frankly, extremely costly. People come down and talk about the cost of elections.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But when you think about like the cost of security, our AV team, our full team, our lawyers, our board, all of us coming together to hear these challenges and we have to hear them within 10 days of receiving them. Mm -hmm. Uh, We can't, we can't, it's mutable. We have to mail. So when people send us thousands of people, we have to communicate with thousands of people. Those things all um, really are distracting for our team. And frankly, don't generally serve uh, uh, much of a function because most of these people are already slated to be removed by the Secretary of State.
3: You mentioned security, and, and there's two types of security here we're talking about. Obviously, security for folks in terms of how secure are the the machines, and that's a whole other conversation. But it is, yeah. it is of concern. I believe it's valid for many folks. And also just Security in terms of at the locations. And we we have incidents where folks were concerned, not just concerned, we have evidence as folks when they testified to Congress on the threats and the harassment, uh, depending on whatever side you were on. What are you all doing to ensure that not only just the workers and your election workers, but as folks head to these polling locations that they will be it will be a safe and secure environment?
2: Well, we work very closely uh, with the police department, local police, with our sheriff's department um, to ensure that we have a very detailed security plan in place for every polling location from advanced voting through election day. Um, we have a centralized call center uh, if there is an issue and there isn't security present at the time so that we have the ability to do that. We've had folks um, come in and brief our staff about uh, their own personal security and things that they need to do uh, to make sure that they are being safe. Um, so it's it's quite a uh, you know it's a whole nother level of operation. There's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes. Folks pick their issue of the day that concerns them. Oftentimes, it's not what concerns us.
3: Mm. A while ago, I had a conversation with a representative from the Brennan Center um, who had released a report and and, and authored a study about this PAC, the Conservative Partnership Institute, considered a right-wing nonprofit, um, with a lot of funding from folks that were in in Donald Trump's part of his network. And basically talking about how there is this effort to mobilize folks to challenge uh, immediately challenge election results some even talked about how to be heard how to make sure you get your point across some call them election deniers you are focusing on this too as well you can't how do you weed out if you can who's going to be working in your in your polling locations so who you know do you is this concern of you these election deniers
2: Well, look, anybody is welcome to come and and work uh, as a poll worker. Um, They have to adhere to the rules and standards of conduct that we put out there for everyone. If they're not willing to do that, then they will be asked to leave. Uh, And for the most part, the folks who are are engaging with us as poll workers are interested in doing that. We just have to make sure that people understand we we are the ones responsible for running the election and having people show up on election day thinking that they have the answer to something that needs to happen um, and, and take it in their own hands is just not... Uh, acceptable behavior. And, um, you know, we we work very carefully to make sure that that doesn't happen.
3: And I want to be clear, too, because I do have an email from a listener that wanted a little bit more clarity in terms of the ballot box, in terms of these for, for folks to return their absentee ballots. There was a lot of changes to this, not as many as there used to be in accounting for the size of Fulton. If you don't have that number, I'd, I'd rather that we have an, an exact number, we can give that later. But do you know just how many of these ballot boxes will be around the county
2: no i'm sorry i don't they are in very specific locations when we approved the list yesterday we approved the list of where the drop boxes will be located uh if i were to think back in my mind i would say it's probably a quarter of the ones Mm -hmm. but that is not an accurate count um, I, I want to say seven or eight, something like that. Again, seven, not seven or eight, and
3: even. but we know it's a it's a the number is is very low compared to in the past here. Which leads me to this, Madam Chair, in terms of outreach and, and awareness and campaign and letting folks know in Fulton County where they can find these drop boxes and all the information they need. Are you all having to revamp that as well?
2: Well, we send out mailings to people with information relative to voting. Our, our communication staff, I think, has done a really good job of, of putting information out there and putting information out for college students, for example. The one thing I want to say to people, and I really want them to hear me say this: make a plan for voting. Think about it today. What do you? How do you want to vote? Do you want to vote by mail? Mm-hmm. Do you want to vote in person? Do you want to vote on Election Day? Have you checked to make sure everything about your registration is or in order? You can go to the Secretary of State's website to check that. Um, if you're going to vote by mail, go on and get ready to send that in after August 22nd. If you're going to vote, uh, you know, if you're going to vote early, you can vote at any of our early voting locations. Mm-hmm. But on Election Day, you have to vote at your precinct, um, or your vote won't count. Um, so uh, you got to make a plan. And if you have questions, call our office. Um, there's plenty of advocacy groups out there that can give you information. The Secretary of State's office can, but, it, but really, 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 everybody's got to take the responsibility for themselves or, or people or their loved ones mm-hmm. to, to make a plan and help make sure everybody understands what to do.
3: Is it too early to ask you how optimistic you are that this will be a smooth process or if you wanted to grade it? Are you to wait?
2: wait, It's way too early. I mean, (laughs) honestly, I think our staff has has plans and contingency plans and backup plans and sideways plans. Uh, We've got all of that. But, you know, power outages happen. uh, You know, bridges catch on fire. Okay. You know, (laughs) rain. I mean, seriously, we are a county with, on election day, 250 polling places, 3,000 people working, a county uh, that, um, has almost 900,000 registered voters and we're about 70 miles end to end. Anything could happen, but, but what I will tell people is that we have, we've seen it all and we have contingency plans for everything.
3: Will you have a director by then or? I,
2: I expect so, but I thought we might have one by now. So, you know, we go through our process and, uh, Um, you know we've got a great uh, interim director who's been our elections director for almost a decade and so we're in quite good hands.
3: Kathy Woolett chairs the Fulton County Board of Registration and Elections. We appreciate you taking the time. I guess if there's any takeaway from this conversation as you just told folks have a voting plan.
2: Have a voting plan and exercise your right to vote. We work very hard to give you the opportunity to do it so please take it.
3: Madam Chair thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good information. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. AI, I think I said the name correctly, is a company that uses AI technology to monitor and identify weapons as part of their threat awareness technology. Now, the founders say they are working to promote to promote safe and ethical use of AI technology to prevent gun violence in schools, public spaces and businesses. And of course, the next question is, how they're going to do this. And then the next question is, can they explain this to the public radio host and the listeners so it makes sense? Well, we're going to ask them. Joining me now are the co-founders of Iterate.ai. We have John Normark and Brian Sethanotham. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose.
4: Thank you, Rose, for having
3: us. Let's begin here because I had a, a segment a few weeks ago where we talked about the use of AI and, and the algorithms as it relates to robots. And there were some questions about the robots were operating on an algorithm that was probably rooted in some type of bias. So I got a lot of questions after that. And people first said to me, Rose, what is the difference between AI? And then the algorithms and do they go hand in hand and why should I care? I had a listener email me. Why should I care about AI right now? John, you take it.
0: Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna pass it to Brian. Oh look at he's, you. He, he, <laughs> <laughs> he's smarter than me, so I'm gonna let him answer that. <laughs> Brian, yeah, okay.
3: For the listener to email me and say, Why am yeah. I hearing so much about AI Rose? Yeah.
4: Yeah, Rose, no, that's a great question. In fact, uh, often uh, um, heavily discussed subject, right? Uh, so let me explain you a little bit about what AI is and what, what algorithms are, right? And also tell you what we are doing in terms of, you know, how we're helping.
3: Now, before to- you do that, Brian, keep in mind what I just said. Explain this to someone who has no idea what this is and, you know, you want to make a good impression.
4: Yeah, perfect. So uh, what, what the AI really does is, what it actually means is it's basically using the computer, right? Uh, to, to learn, look at things, It's just like a child. You know, when, you, when a child is growing up, you will teach the child certain things. And, you know, you, very soon when they're, you know, a few years old, they will know exactly how to respond mm-hmm. based on all the prior teaching and learning, right? So in the, like several decades ago, you know, this whole AI system started, which is basically a method of teaching computers just like how you would teach a child Mm -hmm. and just like how a child would learn the computer would learn right so that's what artificial intelligence is called there is many different uh, ways or names it has Mm -hmm. one of them is ai the other name that you would have always heard is machine learning and some Mm -hmm. of our customers would have heard that as well Uh, then the concept of what an algorithm is algorithm is nothing else but like uh, basically a method like a bunch of instruction just like if i if rose if you ask me how do i get to target or walmart i would just on a paper write a series i in mean, the old school remember like map quest <laughs> where you just says, go take a left take i a got right. you it's yeah it's a series of instructions So algorithm is a series of instructions and that's so a lot of times when you talk to experts they will always use these words like algorithms ML, but they all kind of pointing to the same kind of a thing in, in a general sense
3: and in in a sense yeah. this has become a part of our life and it can help you know, make our quality of life better, depending on when you ask and what that area is. And when you all are talking about, first of all, threat awareness technology, I get that. And then you say, but you know what? We're hoping this will promote safe and ethical use of the AI technology to prevent gun violence in schools and all these other areas. So let's talk about this threat awareness technology. What is it? How long has it been around? And how is this going to possibly prevent gun violence? Uh-huh. So now, John, Can you I, gonna pass that to yeah. Brian or are you gonna No, no, that?
0: I'll, I'll take this one, but <laughs> Brian's always invited to jump in. Um, <laughs> so, um, about a year and a half ago, we created an AI to help a person drive into a gas station, uh, get recognized, their car gets recognized, um, by the cameras that already exist, and it allows the it during COVID it allowed a person to be able to turn on the gas pump, uh, with just their phone, and, and also to pay for the gas with just their phone. So they mm-hmm. never really had a. It, it eliminated um, you having to put your credit card in at the pump and everything. Well, after we did that, um, a, a company that we built that for, they have uh, robberies uh, armed robberies in their stores. And they said, Oh my gosh, could we stop armed robberies before, you know, identify a robber before they even come in the store. Mm -hmm. If we can spot something like a gun, because what we, what we learned is we could trigger payments and stuff through the camera. And, uh, that was the initial take. So they asked Brian that and Brian said, "I, I think we can. And, uh, so what, we started doing was building what Brian just talked about, these, the, these capabilities using the computer to identify objects like guns, like knives, uh, using a camera that exists, and, you know, so that we can spot them in milliseconds, and, and using a camera, Rose, do you have a question? Here? Yeah, because you,
3: you, you, we're yeah. on Zoom, folks don't know, because you know, you know what my next question is going to be, I'm sure. Maybe not. Well, uh, just because a person has a gun doesn't mean they're going to yeah. rob the convenience store. No. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It could yeah, be. Yeah, a, it's
4: a great, great yeah. question, uh, bro. So there, there are yeah. a lot of things. I mean, I carry
3: use. mace if I come up in there. I don't want, you know, I'm, I'm not going to try yeah. to take something. Yeah, you know. yeah.
4: No, that's a great question. I'm just right? saying. Yeah. So, so, so what happens, and I'll take that part. So what yeah. happens, we do have the ability to, to train. The system has been trained on identifying threats, right, in terms of, uh, how they are entering the store, and also like using, you know, uh, combative behaviors and all those things, right? So we can do that in the school as well. As as a person is entering, um, as the person is with weapons, we are able to identify them, and we also have the ability to train out staff because a lot of times security personnel who work in those in that in that school will actually carry weapons as well. So we have the yeah. ability to train out as well.
3: Let me ask um, you all this because when you talk about being able to identify combative behavior. And we all know concerns that as, relate, as relates to profiling, and again, the segment I had a few weeks ago talked about you know prejudice and, and racism and sexism in robots right. based on right. these AI algorithms. So I'm going to ask you all the same question: How do you how does this pr- this process this technology work without some of the those concerns as relates to profiling? And you also mentioned this ethical response to it? Because that's part of it as well.
4: Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think there are a number of nuances to it, right? Just like every, every because as you're building technology and introducing technology to the world, uh, technology always advances faster than the human adoption and the laws and policies and, and the social implications that come along with it, right? Mm-hmm. So there are a couple of things that we do which are kind of very unique, and we pay a lot of attention to this. One is, of course, the when we detect Human faces. We we blur the images so that there is no bias in terms of uh, face color identification. That's one. Mm-hmm. Um, we we have techniques to identify staff, uh, but then we don't identify non-staff. That, okay. That's by design, right? That's that's yeah. the first thing. And so we, in other so words, we don't even
0: need we don't even need a face to detect a threat. Detect a threat. We're looking more for a gun and and maybe a gun coming to a back door, where guns aren't supposed to exist. And then we can alert a security guard or a principal of a school or, you know, that there is a potential threat coming toward a back door of the school. Mm -hmm. We can identify a Kevlar vest. Okay. Uh, You know, but we won't say this is an adult, a child, you know, we don't need to know that. It's just the object. Is it being used already? Is it in a testing phase?
4: It is currently being used uh, um, in in a school uh, because we can't necessarily disclose all the details because Mm -hmm. of all the privacy and security involved.
3: Sure.
4: Uh, We are in conversations with a a lot of schools and and in the commercial space, this is being uh, deployed as well, right? So Mm -hmm. yeah, uh, we've done a lot of testing ourselves as well as with a lot of partners uh, with also with some experts in this industry uh, as well.
3: As you both know, in your field, and, and I'm up in the next segment I want to talk to a, an expert in research and clinical trials, as you know, in that phase it's always important that because you can identify the issues, identify, in, in other words, what, what goes wrong. and leading up to your technology, what were those issues or challenges that you are able to identify or that presented itself and then you were able to just come back and say, hey, we need to change this because this is, this is concerning?
4: Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. There are a number of points there, right? First, of course, is your natural question on bias, right? Mm-hmm. Which is actually definitely like, you know, as technologies and AI improve, there is always has to be a have, have to be a concerted effort because you have to intentionally put effort on training your AI mm-hmm. to remove biases, right? The other is the effort on I um, basically distinguishing between staff versus, you know, potential intruders and who are non-staff people. Right, so that's yeah. kind of another thing. The other is also the the effort on identifying like non-threats, right? Like toy guns, like a Halloween, a, a child comes with a Nerf gun, mm-hmm. right? You don't want to alert the cops on it, right? So there's a lot of like oh, different yeah. different learnings, and, right? And, oh, and another
0: one is false, positives. false uh, positives, you know, where we don't want to. We could alert a security guard. We have a threat in the back door, but it's really not one. Mm-hmm. Um, but. But that's what's kind of exciting uh, to me is that the school can set the rules. It's not us. Uh, it's, we, we just create the capability for them to set rules and how they want to respond to various threats. But certainly as, as this gets deployed more and more, we'll learn more and more. Like Brian just said, the, even the algorithms are continuously getting better.
3: Well, what about liability? Because if a business or school uh, says, you know what, we were using this technology that we got from Iterit and something happened and then you all are liable. I mean, is that something that you, you concern yourself with? Just uh, like, has, uh, just so like when a, folks try, you know, folks who say yeah. we should hold gun makers of the AR-15s, you know, liable, Yeah, someone can make that same argument for, for you all, for your company.
4: Yeah. Uh, so a couple of things, of course, you know, as, as I mentioned previously, technology is always improving at a, mm-hmm. At a faster pace than you know how we can adapt it or even policies and laws that can be made around it. So our goal is to help our kids and keep our kids safe, right? Mm -hmm. So this is a thing that Iterate is very committed to in our journey. So one thing in terms of liability, a couple of things that we are looking at. One, of course, is you know this is a threat of Vienna system. It's an additional layer in security. So we are very clear about when we partner with folks. This is not the silver bullet that's gonna. Magically, you know, flip a switch and turn off everything. So that's about, you know, in terms of communication, mm-hmm. clear, you know, clear contracts in terms of when we work with, uh, with, with various partners and schools. Right? In terms of what it prevents and what it can actually capture. So there's, I think, communication and. and Education plays a big part, and then we are committed yeah. to kind of doing that as well. And of course, then you know there are other traditional things like insurances and other kind of um, you know, protection mechanisms.
0: And, and just like just like Brian said, what we're really interested in doing is just trying to stop these shootings, and we're going to mm-hmm. use the tech, the capabilities that we've got, you know, our core strengths, to try to help this. And we're trying to make it so accessible, like financially, that any school, any any religious organization, you know, could deploy this. and and certainly we're worried about, um, you know, we, we've got to protect, like you said, the liability side mm-hmm. of this. But at, at the same time, like Brian said, we view it as a layer. Uh, just like a, a lot of places have security guards and that's not a 100%. I mean, it's great that the security guard's there and we all want them there, but that's not gonna stop everything. And our, this technology won't either, but certainly it'll give one more layer of intelligence.
3: Speaking of layers, as we begin to wrap up, John, I'll let you, I'll start with you on this one. What is there a layer in all of this that you all hope to
0: improve upon with this threat awareness technology? Uh, well, the first thing we want to do is just, you know, every camera adds, let's say a hundred eyes to the a security guards capabilities. So mm-hmm. if we can add you know, 30 cameras in a, a school, and one ca- one school we're working with has 180 of them. So you know, can can we get it into all those? Then all of a sudden, the 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 security guards they do have can be that much more aware mm-hmm. of what's going on. That's really the layer we're working on now. We have we have more tools that we have access access to that we can add in that create new layers, and those include things like uh, new types of radar detection. But uh, Brian. Uh, why don't you just add? Yeah, Brian, I'll give you the last
4: I've word. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Like John said, I think our goal is to you know use technology, but also not to replace what's there, but to be very complementary to the security guards, to the existing school yeah. administrators, right? And also, I think a lot of lot of other things we need to do Rose is education around it, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's a, it's a knowledge is power, right? Knowledge is freedom, right? So we want to be able to create that education with leaders in the school districts, as well as, you know, players in the space, and also even collaborate with yeah. the other solution software providers who are providing technology, create industry yeah. consortiums and, and, and build a standard for doing this right. Because I think we are here to genuinely solve a problem and we want everybody to help
3: us. All right. Brian Sathanatham and John Normack, co-founders of iterates.ai. We'll have a link. On our website, for more information about this, I want to bring you all back to maybe in a few months to see how this is working out and see what the businesses and some of the other entities that are using your software, what they have to say about this? I really appreciate We'd it. We
0: love that, Rose. Yeah, we you. love that,
4: Rose. Thank you for yeah, having thank us.
0: You. Right, take care. Bye-bye.
4: You too.
3: And make sure you catch that interview. It's a really good segment. Closer Look continues now in just a moment. But first, check this out. Who can say what a dream tastes like? Well, Atlanta-based Coca-Cola apparently believes it knows. The soft drink giant is introducing its newest abstract flavor, Dream World Coke, on Monday. Now, it's the latest offering from the from Coke, which says the inspiration comes from the Technicolor world of dreams. Hmm. The beverage maker says Dream World is meant to capture, quote, Technicolor tastes and Get this, surrealism of the subconscious by inviting drinkers to dream with open eyes. Hmm, Coke also experimented with products like space-flavored Starlight and Pixel-flavored Bite. We're back in a moment. Closer Look continues. I'm Rose Scott. Now the number varies as to the percentage of black Americans who actually participate in clinical trials. And even our research, we were sort of caught in between one medical journal cited participation as high as 15% and another as low as 6%. Now we should note these percentages vary based on specific clinical trials. For example, we might find a higher number of black patients involved in let's say cardiovascular related research. Still, It's always been clear there is a great disparity, and not only in the demographic diversity in clinical trials, but other areas as well. Well, noted researcher and health disparities expert Dr. Rick Kittles is now the Senior Vice President for Research at the Morehouse School of Medicine. And among a number of topics we're about to discuss, his vision for implementing additional funding for basic science and clinical research faculty. Dr. Kittles, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you, Rose. Happy to be here.
3: Let's begin with data because whether folks believe it's 15% or 6%, we know that there's always been a huge disparity when right. it comes to black Americans, folks participating in research and clinical trials. Are we seeing any significant stride made in, say, the last, I don't know, five
1: years? You know, there's been a lot of activity in this space, there's been a lot of programs, a lot of money put into this area. Um, and we'll, we'll see, I, you know, I haven't seen the, the more recent data, but um, for many of the diseases that disproportionately impact people of African descent, you would think that there would be more participation. Uh, you mentioned earlier, the cardiovascular trials mm-hmm. where you see the, the higher proportion of African-Americans participate than let's say prostate cancer or, or, or multiple myeloma or something like that. Um, and, and I think that's probably because it would be interesting to see if 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 the increase in the number of african americans in these trials is due to a larger proportion of african american physicians and mm-hmm. you know um leading those trials and so you know we know that there's a lot of black cardiovascular um uh, physicians and and that, that could be leading a lot of that uh, uh, that increase that we see
3: i went back to find a quote cuz i remember reading earlier in the year it was a piece from medstar health and it was titled under community participation in research advances health equity. And I went back and I found the quote, and it was this, the relationship between research institutions and many BIPOC communities is estranged and needs mending to dismantle racial disparities and inequitable research practices. Right. And I thought that that was interesting because we research institutions like Morehouse School of Medicine and like Emory, but we're going to focus on Morehouse School of Medicine, have been so important but this says it's it's a strange in many BIPOC communities. Is that a little troubling for you?
1: It, it, it is troubling, but I think the, the bulk of that um, that um, tension between the BIPOC community and these research institutions are because many of these research institutions are are predominantly white, mm-hmm. led by predominantly white um, uh, leadership, and um, there's there there have been a historical lack of engagement with our communities. And when there when there is engagement, in many cases, that engagement is limited. Mm-hmm. and it's it's just a you know what we call helicopter sort of research where you come in, you swoop in and collect your samples and move on and mm-hmm. and don't build a relationship. Don't understand what the needs are of that community. Um, what I find is that for for many uh, um, institutions uh, like um, Morehouse School of Medicine, where they have this historical relationship with the community, we don't necessarily see, that level of distrust that you mm-hmm. see in many of the predominantly white institutions. And that's another reason why I was so excited to come join the folks at Morehouse School of Medicine.
3: And that's my next question, because your institution is so important and given just even the location, right. the historic location of where Morehouse School of Medicine is located. And you have, if folks don't know, also you're one of the co-founders of ancestry, African Ancestry DNA, yes, right? Yes, I, and look, I yes. took it and I found my okay. roots in Liberia. So thank you very much.
1: Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> thank you.
3: But I was going to do that with my next question. Why Morehouse now and in, in where yeah. you are in your career and the importance of being here and in your leadership and that vision of what you want to bring in, into your role?
1: Right. So I'm I'm uh, I'm very excited to, to, to be here in Atlanta at Morehouse and in particular in the community in which it serves the it's very interesting morehouse school of medicine is is on the precipice of of some serious uh major impact as it relates to to research clinical trials and the advancement um and the creation and advancement of health equity um in our in our communities and so i i I, it was a no-brainer for me to to come and, and be a part of that change um the uh, the efforts that the leadership and researchers, both basic and clinical uh, researchers over the last couple of years has just um, increased drastically. And so now we're going to take it to the next level. Um, I'm gonna be working with a lot of faculty, uh, the research advisory um, uh, council and, and, and executive leadership to really shore up uh, the next phase of what this looks like. And I think actually uh, genomics And Mm -hmm. precision medicine is where things are going to to go.
3: Now, you just told me a moment ago how important it was to have folks who represent, who look like basically the communities for which we want to get more participation for in these research and clinical trials. But you are also going to focus on clinical research faculty.
1: That's right. Which is That's building right. the
3: pipeline. That's right. It? We
1: have to build, we have to build the pipeline and and, and no other place better than, than Morehouse School of Medicine, which historically has has done it and done it very successfully. Um, and so we we are going to focus on hiring more clinical research faculty um, and building that pipeline uh, with the with the students. So the students go through, you know, the, the medical school training. And um, and then get um, experience in research and not just research, but cutting edge research that they can leverage uh, when they leave. What role can you all play in
3: in increasing that pipeline before they even get to medical school? Because, as you know, and I've had this conversation with mm-hmm. Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice about it's been dwindling the percentage of mm-hmm. black men entering the medical field as physicians.
1: Yeah, this is it's we're, we're in, um, you know, it's, it's a very bad situation right now when we look at the. The the, um, the the proportion of men involved, in particular, the sciences, young men. And so we are very uh, aggressive in our pipeline programs, engaging um, students um, from elementary school all the way up. And, and we're going to expand that also because we, we you know, we, we definitely see the uh, the landscape and we see and recognize that, uh, that, that there has to be some um, some change there. And, and part of it is engagement and and getting these kids excited about science. And getting them um, a mentorship so that they can see themselves and say, "Hey, I can do that." I, you know, he's just like me. He's just like my father or my Mm -hmm. uncle, and 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 uh, and and I can I can be just like that.
3: So then, let's talk about the community. Then, how do we Mm -hmm. change those numbers? And is there a a significant or I guess a a a metric that you want to use in terms of, "Hey, Rose, if we can get black participation up to now," and I'm throwing this number out there, and you're going to smile, thirty-seven percent. You know, how do you so, how do you do
1: that? Well, I, I think I think it's not a, it's not going to be an easy uh, task. I think it has to be sustained um, engagement with the community and the building. And like I said, the building of trust, you don't just come in when you get some money from NIH or from some um, pharma company and say, I'm, I'm doing this project. Uh, you know, I want you to participate. I want you to participate in this trial. There, there's a lot of of um, of engagement before that happens. Mm-hmm. That's so critical. And and so we have you know um, uh, enormous capacity in that space at Morehouse School of Medicine, and so that's another reason. Like I said, I was very excited because we can actually do that engagement. We've been doing that engagement, and now we can expand that in the context of precision medicine and and, and clinical trials.
3: Well, then let's talk about you for a moment and your leadership style and how you hope then to to get everyone to first of all you have a vision. You also be working with the dean and the president. But in your leadership style, are you open to making sure that it's not necessarily, Hey, it's Dr. Kittle's way or the highway. But also, (laughs) we're yeah. Listen, sometimes folks (laughs) get a title, and it's like, oh, you know.
1: Right, right. No, no. I I think I think part of my career has been a learning process, and and um, you know, I I started my career doing health equity work before it was considered health equity. I was, you know, starting my career at Howard University. We were studying diseases that disproportionately impact people of African descent, mm-hmm. which then turned out to be considered disparities and health equity. And, and, and then I had different um, gigs throughout different um, organizations around the country. And I learned a lot about leadership. And I learned a lot about how to um, in, in, instill change in institutions. And um, I'm not saying that this is going to be an easy task, but mm-hmm. I am going to say that um, it's not just going to be my way or the highway. Uh, th- there's a lot of talent At Morehouse School of Medicine, it just needs to be tapped and leveraged. I
3: know that folks in your space, we have been moving away from that term disparity and moving toward health equity. But health equity is is it can't be achieved just alone with with Morehouse School of Medicine. It Mm -hmm. takes the local, the state, the federal. And as you know, that can change depending on who's in the White House. How do you navigate through all that? Because you will need funding.
1: Rose, that is a great question. That is a that's a that's a spectacular question. When I when I, you know, I, I, I when I look across the landscape around the country and and think about this issue of health equity and how can we really make substantial sustainable change, it's much more than just a research project. It's much more than just setting up some clinic in the community. There there is a level of of education that has to um, roll out to the community to to these families. To these individuals, there's a level of, of um, advocacy um, uh, t- t- advocacy to um, to uh, uh, researchers mm-hmm. and also to healthcare providers around particular um, issues in health. And then there's this issue of of policy change mm-hmm. and advocating for policy change. So it's multi level and um, it, it's it's it, it encompasses a broad community um, level of engagement. From, like I said, at the individual level in the community, all the way through these institutions to um, state and local and um, uh, federal um, uh, 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 legislators.
3: Well, as we begin to wrap up, do you if you have that strategic plan you're working with folks, what's at the top of that list?
1: Well, the, the, the top of the list is to. Um, make sure folks stay excited about research at at Morehouse School of Medicine and to give them opportunities to expand that research. I think I think one of the um, uh, the major um, uh, issues that we're going to to uh, not issues but one of the the, the major challenges that that I'm going to face is how do we continue to um, expand our research portfolio, mm-hmm. um, given the um, uh, given the, um, the the number of individuals we have, the number of faculty we have. So we have to expand faculty. So it's a it's a it's a much bigger um, uh, uh, problem that we're going to have to address.
3: Uh, well, welcome to Atlanta. Are you now going to root for the Falcons and the Braves and the Atlanta Dream? <laughs>
1: Yeah, soon, soon, I guess. We'll see.
3: (laughs) see. Dr. Rick Kittles, now the Senior Vice President for Research at the Morehouse School of Medicine. Thank you so much for taking time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. I say this all the time to all the great institutions here in our region. Thank you for what you all are doing to help so many people who maybe not be able to have quality health care. Thank you. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Razell, and Pat St. Clair. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder, let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online because that's where it is, wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like, as well as City Lights and Political Breakfast and the tech report, and all that good stuff, and the brief. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott.
2: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and
3: NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need.